good Monday morning. This is Dustin Hobbs with the California MBA. Welcome to another episode of Connect. Hope you're uh, excited for a good conversation. We've got a great guest today. I'm excited to uh, jump into the conversation with him here in just a minute or two. But before we do that, let's thank our sponsors over at Incelerate. Incelerate is the leading mortgage lead management, CRM, and engagement platform that helps lenders close more loans by increasing efficiency gains across sales, marketing, operations, management. And they've just uh, earlier this year announced a, uh, the first of its kind mobile app that they released. The groundbreaking mobile app features full lead management, lead distribution, click to call, inbound call routing, first call automation, and two-way compliant text messaging and provides access to critical loan information without having to use a laptop or log into your LOS system. It also empowers loan officers by intelligently distributing leads, managing pipelines, prioritizing their day, automating best practices, and personalizing the borrower's journey all from the mobile app. So for more information or to catch a demo, visit Incelerate.com. You can also catch uh, our friend Josh Friend on uh, LinkedIn. I'm sure he'd be more happy to uh, set you up with a demo, or you can call the number listed in the description below. So before we get into the conversation, I want to toss it over to our CEO, Susan Malazzo, for this week's weekly update. Susan? Thanks, Dustin. Hi, this is Susan with the California MBA. This week, I'd like to talk with you about our annual Legal Issues and Regulatory Compliance Conference. So for those of you that have joined us for this event in the past, we typically host this in December. This year, we are uh, moving that to January 12th and 13th, and we'll be providing it in our virtual environment. So if you've joined us for some of our conferences over the summer, you know that we have an excellent virtual platform that we can execute these conferences with. We have lots to talk about from a compliance standpoint uh, in California. So um, some of the topics that we'll be covering, of course, how the pandemic has affected your business, not only from you running your companies and taking care of your employees, but how you are reaching out to customers, either from an origination or servicing uh, perspective. Uh, we'll be talking about um, CCPA and the new privacy ballot initiative that passed here in California. Um, we also have included labor law topics, uh, which have been very popular at this conference for the last few years. So if you want um, any of your questions answered about California labor law, we'll have a panel that's addressing that, as well as, of course, hot uh, litigation topics, um, uh, as well as uh, you know, look at what the new QM will look like and um, we are very pleased to be invite or to be joined by Commissioner Manuel Alvarez uh, with the California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation, of course, um, formerly the Department of Business Oversight, our state regulator here in California. So if you are licensed in the state of California, this is a virtual conference you cannot afford to miss. We've got some great topics. Uh, speakers that are recognized nationally that'll be joining us to provide uh, information on a wide variety of topics. Visit our website for information on how to register, uh, or if you're interested in participating as a sponsor, there's information for you there as well. That's it for this week. Back to you, Dustin. Now, let's get into the conversation here. I am excited to welcome in Rich Andriano. Rich is a partner with Ballard & Spar based in their uh, DC offices. Rich is the uh, co-chair, I believe, of their mortgage banking practice. He's also yes, the uh, incoming chair of the California MBA Legal Issues Committee and the co-chair of our upcoming Legal Issues and uh, Regulatory Compliance Conference coming up this January. Welcome, Rich. Well, thank you for having me. All right, well, hey, let's uh, let's start the background. Let's, uh, let's find out uh, who you are here. Tell us 
what uh, you know got you into the legal field when what kind of led you into specifically the world of uh, financial markets and uh, regulatory compliance yeah it was it was a it was an interesting path i i would always been interested in in the law in general yeah i thought about journalism and uh yeah political science was always interesting history and all of that and that that sort of gravitated towards towards the law uh and really when i came out of law school what i was thinking more is the securities area uh and that always always interested me and really that's what i basically started doing i, I ended up with a firm uh, i was in the dc office but they had two main bases one was dc and one was los angeles and I was actually working with the Los Angeles group. They had a big financial institutions practice. So uh, a lot of the clients were California-based uh, institutions. And during the time, this is about the mid, mid-80s, uh, a lot of mutual you know, savings loan associations were converting to the stock form. And uh, so that's what I was working on. I was working on some of the securities partners doing that. But as we moved from the mid-80s towards the later 80s, it might recall back then, uh, a lot of savings loans started having a bit of financial hiccups, and that sort of put it, yeah, that put it into the mutual stock conversion business pretty, pretty quick. Uh, fortunately, some of our California-based clients were quite healthy, and they were actually expanding their operations, uh, particularly their mortgage operations east, because they wanted, you know, wanted to grow their mortgage business. So I wasn't doing the mutual stock conversions anymore, and the firm came to me and said, "Hey, we've got this partner here who's helping uh, our, you know, mortgage lending clients. You want to work with him?" And to me, it sounded like a good opportunity. He had been at the Fed, uh, was involved in writing a lot of the regulations e provisions that still exist today, and so I thought this would, you know, be a good way to learn uh, learn the industry and, and the federal regulation of it. So that was my entree in the later 80s to uh, to the mortgage uh, industry, and 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 here I am now. Yeah, well, and uh, I mean, you talk about uh, a, a never-ending job. Now you've got <laughs> with regulatory Absolutely. issues. Absolutely, it is it is a dynamic area. That is to say that's the least. Best way to put it. I think that's the best way to put it. Um, so I'm curious, what uh, you know during this last year? Obviously, this year has been a, a crazy year for everyone. What's been maybe the biggest challenge for you, uh, sort of navigating the pandemic environment? Yeah, interestingly enough, for me the I know the work from home for a lot has been a challenge. For me, it wasn't, and it was two main reasons. One, I was I was used to working remotely, often being on the road a lot. Uh, and the second, although I have kids, they're grown, they're out of the house. So we don't have that school issue and keeping them occupied during the day. And I know, you know, some of my colleagues who are younger and have that, that that's a real challenge. You just have to be flexible working with their schedule. Uh, for me though, the real challenge firstly is when right after the pandemic, we were really in the beginning of it and all of the legislation and executive orders and ruling started coming to deal with it. We had the CARES Act. We had all the work from home orders. We had, are you an essential business or not? Uh, forbearances, uh, all of these different things. So it was, it was Congress, it was the states, it was Fannie Freddie, FHA, VA. And it was like, it was a tsunami coming at you of changes. And keeping up with that was dawning and uh, paces down now, but just, I was doing my regular monitoring the industry, writing alerts and blog posts, but I wrote, I think it was over 100 COVID-19 related alerts based on all of those changes. So 
it, it was, I mean, I just remember back to March, April, it was exhausting. Uh, and that, that to me was the hardest. But I think the industry should uh, pat itself on the back for how quickly it pivoted to work from home, doing uh, closings and working with their customers, making sure people got their loans closed on time. It, industry did a fantastic job. And we, you know, we firm kept going around saying, well, how are, are is the industry okay? And I said, mortgage industry's fine. They really pivoted well. Interest rates are low. Uh, it, it's going like gangbusters and uh, much better than a lot of businesses. So I think the industry really deserves a, a round of applause for how well it's handled this. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, even just in this podcast here in the past year, we've I've every lender I've talked to, I've asked the same question, you know, how are you guys dealing with the pandemic issues? And every one of them to a person is, you know, without blinking said, we were, you know, we pivoted pretty quick to work from home. It wasn't that big of a deal. We just kept right on going. So I think you're right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So mm -hmm. uh, let's uh, maybe back up here a bit to the, because uh, certainly this year has been crazy. I mean, it's, uh, for me, at least, maybe it's just me, but the CARES Act feels like it was 10 years ago. Um, <laughs> quite a year. Um, but regulation in general, I want I'm curious your thoughts on if we back out just a bit and zoom out, uh, maybe what has been perhaps the most underappreciated law or regulatory action or case that's had a major impact on the industry, maybe in the last like 20 years? It, it's actually a case, uh, I think, uh, a little more recent. It was decided in 2016. It was a case of Spokio v. Robbins. Uh, and really involved with Spokio and whether they had accurate information about this individual on their on their site, and they were deemed a credit reporting agency under the FCRA. And and basically, though, the case centered more on what does a plaintiff have to allege to get themselves to have standing under our the U.S. Constitution in federal court? Because a lot of times we get plaintiffs saying, "Hey, they violated RESPA. I'm suing." Uh, they didn't necessarily allege they were harmed. They just said, there's a RESPA violation, I'm, I'm suing. And what the Supreme Court came down and said, now you just can't allege a statutory violation. You have to allege that there was a concrete and particular injury. In other words, concrete, it was real, wasn't speculative. In particular, it affected you. Yeah. And they decide in this case, uh, the plaintiff had not really done that. Uh, and that the Ninth Circuit had not fully applied the standard. So it reversed the Ninth Circuit's decision and basically said that merely alleging a violation of a federal statute doesn't get you into federal court. And that we've seen now more recently, that probably one of the most recent ones, a case that had been going on for a long time here on the East Coast, where uh, some plaintiffs, they were solicited by a lawyer to bring a class action lawsuit against a real estate team. It's a uh, case I think was Bayer uh, versus uh, uh, the Craig Northup team. And it was a team of real estate agents. And uh, the allegation was that they had a referral arrangement with a particular title company. So they were alleging uh, a RESPA violation. What they did not allege is harm in the way I was overcharged. They didn't say we were overcharged. What they basically said, they were denied the opportunity to a free market where there wasn't steering and you could be, be free to shop. So it was this kind of ethereal claim. Uh, district court said, no, nah, we're looking at Spokio not enough, goes up to the Fourth Circuit. The Fourth Circuit agreed. They said, no, nah, that's not enough. You, you didn't allege harm. Uh, you have to allege harm particular to you and a real harm dismisses it. So I think this case will be very helpful in defending a lot of cases, particularly these where lawyers try to bring these class actions and they find a plaintiff 
and they find something that if true could be a RESPA violation, but has anyone suffered any harm? And that, so I think it's gonna be very key to knock out some cases at the motion to dismiss level, because that's what it is. If you don't make it, the court doesn't have jurisdiction, so it has to dismiss the case. Now, this only applies at the federal level, doesn't necessarily stop someone from going to state court, but litigators in my firm say, a lot of state constitutions have the same language in their constitutions that the Supreme Court's decision was based on. So the result often should be the same in state court as well. So that's, I think, is a very helpful uh, helpful development that it was picked up, but it, it didn't necessarily get the attention, for instance, of the PHH case, which got a lot of a lot of attention. Yeah, you know, I mean, I would think just for the, the uh, keeping down the volume of cases in general, that's gotta have a huge impact that we, you know, like you said, we probably don't you know, fully appreciate it yet. Yes. Indeed. So let's see, you mentioned PHH. Let's, uh, you know, uh, switch our gaze back to the CFPB. Where do we stand right now with the, uh, you know, legal challenges to the CFPB itself? There are some un ongoing challenges, but I think the potential for the biggest impact is a case that actually doesn't involve the CFPB. It involves the Federal Housing Finance Agency. And that's Collins versus Mnuchin, where uh, that's going up through the Fifth Circuit, and they held the entire court that the structure was unconstitutional, surprisingly, because the director was only removable for cause. Somewhat similar to the Bureau, but not, not exactly similar. Uh, the Supreme Court has agreed to hear that case, and there will be oral arguments. I think they're on December 9th. Uh, and the interesting thing, though, in the SELA law case decided earlier this year, where the court was ruling directly on the constitutionality of the Bureau, the only issues were, uh, is the Bureau constitutional or not? And if the structure's not, what's the remedy? The court ruled it's not constitutional. The remedy was the, you know, the surgical remedy, the director becomes removable at will rather than for, for cause. They didn't address what is the ramification of that on prior CFPB actions? Yeah. The Collins case involves that issue because the court, the Supreme Court, accepted both the Treasury Department's petition to hear the case and the Fannie Freddie shareholders petition. The shareholders petition addresses actions taken by the FHFA and if it's deemed unconstitutional, whether the Supreme Court has to set aside those actions. So potentially, should the Supreme Court rule FHFA is unconstitutional and decide that affects its past actions, that's going to have direct implications for the Bureau. That really could result in chaos, which is why my guess is you know, courts don't like chaos. So the thought is I, the Supreme Court would probably try to avoid a decision that created chaos. Uh, now, a lot of people have assumed, well, they're going to hold the FHFA structure unconstitutional. And I say, I I wouldn't go there, because uh, even in the seal of law arguments, of course, the Collins versus Mnuchin case came up as as a relevant case and, and what the court thought of that. And I remember Chief Justice Roberts made a comment, and you're always you know, reading comments during oral arguments, just sort of like reading tea leaves, but, but it pretty indicated he didn't necessarily think the FHFA and the Bureau were identical, that he senses that the Bureau was much more powerful, so the four cores removal provision for the director there was much more of a concern than perhaps with the FHFA. Strangely, the Fifth Circuit found thought the FHFA was much more powerful from the Bureau. And it so gives you, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder what, what things are. Obviously in our industry, 
FHA has a lot of power in a narrow, narrow area. The Bureau has expansive power in a broad, broad area. And uh, it, it's hard to deny to us, the Bureau clearly has greater power. So I, I'm not okay. sure the court gets to the same place, but if they do, and you know, we'll listen to the oral arguments, uh, it's gonna be interesting to see what, what, how they might rule. No kidding. So if they're hearing uh, arguments in December here, when can we, you know, theoretically expect a, a, a ruling? Would that be like waiting until summer to get the ruling or? Yeah, the court normally ends uh, in June, although in, in some years more recently, they've had so many things. Opinions have drifted into July, actually. Uh, the major opinions, because they get considered and they really think and spend their time writing them, tend to come out later. So the fact it's not being argued until December, I'm looking at probably a June timeframe for, for that, because it's a significant ruling, you know, constitutional rulings are pretty significant and they like to take their time with those. So if, yeah, if you're a compliance officer at a lender, maybe you don't take uh, June or June, vacation in June or July. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's gonna, be a, that's gonna be a big one when that one comes out, because uh, it could have broad implications uh not only for fhfa but for the bureau itself no kidding yeah well so if we're looking at uh, cfpb uh in general what uh let's yeah and, and we're we're saying this we're filming this here on a, a friday um and we still don't quite know it sounds like that uh, we're likely to get a uh, president biden but it's nothing's you know for sure yet right. um but how does the how would you anticipate the cfpb's agenda you know looking next year you know depending on if we have a President Biden or President Trump? Either either way, I think that the two of the main things for our area are the two uh, QM proposals, the proposal to revise the general QM from the current very strict 43% debt to income ratio and that appendix Q, which is woefully inadequate to assess debt or income, and to replace that with a loan pricing construct. It's got a proposal had a few uh, points in it that need fixing in the uh, national MBA and its comment made some very good comments on on that point again advocacy is very very important uh, and then the season loan QM will create an entirely new category which basically if a fixed rate loan that had the standard pro, uh, features for a QM had a good payment history basically good payment history for 36 months it would if what regardless it would become a safe harbor QM regardless of what it had been before then now I think those will be key focuses the difference will be who wins president if Trump were to to win uh, I think uh, you know you see both of those proposals adopted though the bureau asked for a lot of comment on variables to the proposal so even if Trump is reelected and Craninger stays in the final rules may differ uh, from what was proposed because they did ask for a lot of variables and I wouldn't even be shocked of a reproposal if they come up with some different paths to go down. This, they, they, I think they understand they gotta get this right and so they're trying to be careful. If Biden wins, however, I, I see a different path. The consumer groups very much don't like the season loan proposal and I wouldn't be surprised if they pull that back and take that off, off the table and just don't go forward with it. Then with the general QM, might they go down a different path? Might that affect, you know, do they go with the loan pricing construct? Do they go with some of the variables that would maybe combine loan pricing plus DTI? I could see something that might add more restrictions to be consumer protective, but they do, un I think the Bureau would even understand in a Biden administration, because in the quadrated uh, 
Cordray, when he was in uh, as director, realized there was that need for the GSE patch and without it, that could really cause harm to the industry as that was transitioning out of the mortgage crisis. I think there's a belief at the Bureau today that the current QM just doesn't work. And if we're not given something better than that, um, it's not going to work for consumers when the patch finally finally goes away. So I think there, there's an understanding, regardless of whether Trump wins or Biden wins, that what we have now doesn't work and we need something better. I think at a Biden CFPB, it would probably have more consumer protections built in than it would in a Trump CFPB. Yeah, well, and you would, and I, I would imagine that, you know, assuming we have a President Biden, then, you know, CFPB's later year priorities or 2022 priorities completely change, obviously, at that point from you know, a President Trump. Very much so, yes. Yeah. So where are we at? You mentioned the uh, the QM patch. Where are we at with that? What's, uh, you know, for those who aren't uh, caught up to speed on it, um, what where are we at with that and what impact uh, should lenders expect uh, in the coming year? Yeah, I mean, when, when the ability to pay rule, and it went through, the original rule went through a few iterations because after they put out the original rule, they had, I think it was three different amendments to it before it went effective. And one was to add the patch because Cordray came in and realized that wasn't part of the original proposal. To the, his credit, he realized uh, they needed something to transition. So at that point, rule comes effective January 10, 2014. We had the GSC patch, which would sunset if Fannie Freddie came out of conservatorship. We knew back then that wasn't going to happen anytime soon. I still don't think it's going to happen <laughs> anytime soon. But the other date was January 10, 2021, which seemed way off in the future. Well, it, it's around the corner and the Bureau uh, realized that uh, to create, um, avoid market uncertainty, that thing need, needed to be extended. And so in June, they proposed, if actually I thought they took a little time, I would have proposed you know, a year ahead of time to extend it. They proposed in June. In October, they did extend it. Uh, extended when? It depends. It's sort of indefinite. It's tied to whenever they adopt the new general QM, uh, applications that are taken before the date that that QM goes, the old QM goes away, uh, will still be able to rely on the patch. The way they had originally proposed it, there was going to be a gap period where if a loan didn't close by a certain time, it can neither rely on the patch or the new QM. And they fixed that in, in the way they extended the patch so that uh, basically it'll be available to the day for applications taken up to the day before the current QM is no longer available and the only other one was be whatever they replace it with. Interestingly, they did say they were considering perhaps a, a concept that the Fed used to use. The Fed, with a lot of truth in lending rules, uh, would have an effective date and then a later mandatory compliance date, often six months later. And what that allowed you to do is you could implement a rule on a pilot basis, perhaps in one branch or one region, flip the switch and see if everything doesn't blow up or not, and you could test it, work it out before you expanded it to your entire operation. We've encouraged the Bureau to do that for operate, you know, we said, look, it improves compliance. If you allow, allow us to test on a pilot basis and there are unexpected errors, it'll be limited and we can fix the errors before we go live through the entire company. Uh, they said they might do that. They might do that. They're still thinking it through. And obviously the industry is going to uh, recommend that they, they do that approach. Yeah. Have a little bit and, you know, give it a little more clarity too there. Um, yeah. So uh, I'm curious, just kind of going into the next year, 
if you're a lender, what, you know, what can I do if I'm sitting here watching them and there's, you know, all this, you know, uncertainty right now and who knows what's going to happen next year. And, you know, I've got all this coming down with the uh, patch. I mean, what can I do to prepare for 2021? Maybe like a top three things I should do to prepare. There's a few things I think people need to look at. And, and you know, there's this perception that the Craninger led CFPB is doing nothing. And while I do agree in some settlements, the dollar amounts may be less than they were in the Cordray years. That that doesn't mean that the Cordray years were right and the Craninger years were wrong. <laughs> you, could wrong you could debate, yeah, you could debate that. But uh, the Bureau has been quite busy in certain areas, particularly two, uh, and there's some relation because some involve marketing. One is though redlining, uh, fair lending in general, but redlining. And uh, we now have, they filed in July, the first ever redlining complaint against a non-bank mortgage company. It's always been banks or depositories. Now we have one against a non-bank. And then they followed that up noting with super in their supervisory highlights that came out in September that in examinations at the end of last year, they cited both banks and non-banks for redlining violations as well. So, and we know, you know, we, we had a few that we were handling, fortunately that ended up well for the, for the clients, but it is an area they're focusing on redlining and particularly in the non-bank area. So there you look at things, they did the standard analysis. What is your outreach and marketing? Do you really trying to reach all areas of communities where you lend? What do your loan officers look like? How many applications when you lend in a community, are you getting a low number of applications from minority areas of that community? Are you not making many loans in the minority areas of those communities? They're looking at these things. So I, one thing I would do is I would do a fair lending analysis or in a re, particularly a redlining analysis. And one is you know, the statistical firms can do this. They could compare you to peer institutions and see, are you an outlier? Because you don't want to be an, that's key. You don't want to be an outlier. If you're an outlier, then you're at the top of the list to get looked at. And so do your own assessment, make adjustments to be better, you know, to better position yourself and look at your advertising. One thing they said, a lot of that advertising is the models were almost all white or the loan officers in the ads were almost all white. That is a red flag to the Bureau. Uh, and so these are simple steps you could do to reduce the likelihood. Another thing the Bureau is doing and involves advertising as well. As you know, there's been a lot of concern with the churning of VA refinance loans. So we had the Growth Act that put in some limitations on that. The VA's issued some guidance to put further limitations. But believe it or not, um, the M National MBA went to the VA and said, hey, we're noticing some direct mail marketing practices that really give us concern. Frankly, they thought they were deceptive. Uh, VA got that, it got the Bureau involved, started in July, the first consent order, we're now up to nine consent orders against lenders for direct mail VA refinance loan marketing. And they're on the Bureau's website, you can go look at them, but basically they were looking at Reg Z. Yeah, they were technically non-compliant with certain Reg Z, but what bothered them more was Reg Z and then the Mortgage Act and Practices Rule, MAP Rule, have a lot of unfair deceptive type of advertising prohibitions in them, that was of greater concern. And they also use their UDAP authority under the Consumer Financial Protection Act at what they thought was various misleading practices. Particularly, you know, one, one thing you can't do is suggest affiliation with the government. They took a very, very broad approach to that where you read some of the things and you said, 
wow, that's pretty expansive view of what, what's government affiliation. And they even had some of the lenders agree, and they admitted this isn't the law, but this is the terms of the consent. Some lenders couldn't agree, uh, use a list, a long list of terms. One of the terms they couldn't use is VA loan specialists. Now I go, I have clients that specialize in VA lending and they think they're VA loan specialists. So uh, I would look at these consent orders and look at how, you know, what you're doing. I'm sure a lot of companies aren't doing what these companies are doing, but it gives you an idea of what the Bureau is looking at and what they're worried about. And, and the thought is they may not end this at this, you know, these direct mail VA refinance. They may take this and say, is anybody else doing this in other areas of lending? So I, I would I would check my lending practices in general because they are focused. And, and the one thing I think, particularly under Biden, CFPB, what we would see more of is the use of their UDAP authority because that, it is very expansive and that's when they often think there's true consumer harm when people are being misled uh, or abused or treated unfairly. That's that's what I think the Biden led CFPB will really focus on. Yeah, well, that's wow, oh, that's a lot. To, if I'm a lender, that's a lot to think about. But that's good advice, mm -hmm. I think, for uh, pre preparing for uh, you know either a, a Trump or a Biden administration going forward. Um, so we've got uh, just a couple of minutes left here. I'm uh, curious to uh, pick your brain on this. You mentioned advocacy earlier. How, you know, and this is sort of a, I would, you know, freely admit this is a bit of a softball question, and, but I think that uh, hearing from you on this is important. Um, you know, how important is advocacy work right now, particularly at the, well, either at the federal level with the MBA or here in California with the California MBA? They're, they're both extremely important. And, and just, you know, looking back, and I alluded to some of these, what with COVID 19, as the shutdown started coming, both the state, uh, and national MBAs quickly pivoted to make sure these shutdown orders make sure that our mortgage companies and the vendors like the title companies, the escrow agents, the other people we need to work with were all deemed essential businesses. That And that was very, and there were some revisions to some of these executive orders because of that advocacy. Then the, the work at home orders. We need to work remotely from unlicensed locations coordinating with the states, the CSBS, to get that guidance where it needed to be. Then for the states that didn't have remote online notarization or similar, to get at least temporary remote online or remote ink sign notarization or similar laws in place so we could do our closing. And then when the CARES Act came along, you know, getting some industry concerns noted there to make, because one, some of the original proposals where you were going through this whole complex procedure to determine if someone was qualified for forbearance, and having been through TARP, uh, I mean, and all uh, all of the various laws from the, from the mortgage crisis, where they said, "Guys, you're making it too hard to determine if someone qualifies or not. We can't process thousands and thousands of applications, you know, overnight." The industry really said, "This needs to be simple. It's got to be simple to determine if someone complies with the forbearance. We don't have the capacity with the number of people that are going to need this to go through a long application process." So that actually, they made it. They took these very difficult proposals. They made it simple. Then, when the states started considering it, the advocacy, "Hey, state, carve CARES Act loans out of your statute or your rules, so we don't have two sets of standards applying to one loan." All of that was extremely important and will remain so because there's going to be another round of legislation. The CARES Act didn't address 
the final resolution of these loans and forbearance. What is the what are the loss mitigation options? It's in the Heroes Act, what which was passed by the House. Uh, that's going to have to be considered, and advocacy is going to be important there. And the states, they're going to consider their own ultimate loss mitigation provisions. So it's making sure that they understand the concerns of the industry and that whatever's imposed on servicers is reasonable and that it's understood that a lot of these advance obligations were unreasonable and a lot of advocacy by the industry got the FHFA to step up and have Fannie and Freddie really take on a lot and Ginny take on some of those advance uh, obligations after a while. So this demonstrates how important it was uh, and the industry would have had a hard time operating without that advocacy and it's going to be more so, particularly if we move into a Biden administration. Um, the House has a lot of things on its plate. Maxine Waters has a lot of plans. Obviously, if the Senate stays Republican, in the news again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, but they they have a big agenda now. The Senate, depending on where it goes, may you know they may that may be a roadblock to a broad you know broad agenda. But uh, we think we're moving to an area where we're going to need to have our points being made at both the state and federal level. And I, always, I know a lot of people think, well, it's really the federal advocacy that's more important. I said, oh no, 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 no. No, the states uh, really now have stepped up and particularly California, which has a very busy and aggressive legislature uh, and governor, uh, advocacy is important to make sure our voices are heard and our concerns are known and how a lot of proposals that while on their face appear to be helpful consumers in the end actually will harm consumers because of the costs it will impose on the industry which will just get passed on to the consumer absolutely yeah and when i couldn't agree with you more about california i mean i think every every uh, state legislator and every committee chair would uh bristle at the thought that uh it, all the focus should be on the federal level and not on what's happening at the state level because they are quite active here as you mentioned and they will be certainly in 2021 for sure uh, so, Absolutely. Rich, thanks again for your time. This is really a good conversation. I think we could have uh, kept talking for a while here. I really enjoy the, the uh, sort of the change in pace from talking about whether it's you know mortgage tech issues or, or uh, talking to lenders about their experiences. I enjoy talking about yep. what's going on in the uh, legal and regulatory compliance environment. So thanks again. Enjoy the conversation. Yeah. Thank you. And if you enjoyed this conversation, make sure and subscribe to us here on our YouTube channel. You can also find us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts. And we'll be back again next Monday for another episode of Connect. We'll see you then.